I'm Kelly Shan and this is my podcast Life Journey. I hope you find some inspiration and happiness for your own life in the words and experience from my guests. This episode is proudly brought to you by Interpath, the joint health experts. Foresight joint supplements keep your animal's joints in top shape and Interpath even has Osteo Restore for you. If you'd like to find out more, head to www.interpath.global or ask at your local vet. From the long, white, sandy beaches of Australia's Gold Coast to the endless Namibian desert, Phoebe Penny has led a diverse and interesting life. Phoebe grew up on Australia's Gold Coast, but her adventurous spirit led her to work on some of Australia's most remote cattle properties before she found herself in Namibia working for a horse trekking company. I've followed Phoebe's adventures for a few years now on Facebook and I'm really excited that she's sharing them on Life Journey. If you're able to watch on YouTube, she has some amazing photos, but her story is just as interesting on our podcast platforms. I hope you enjoy Phoebe Penny's story. Phoebe Penny, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm really excited to catch up with you because it's been such a long time. Yeah, no, it has. It's been, gosh, nearly 12 years or something, hasn't it? Well, Barry and I were trying to work out when you were here. So you came mm. here on work experience. Do yeah. you remember exactly what year it was? It was 2010 while I was oh. doing my diploma. So I was there. You guys were helping me do a, a whole farm plan of Nibirina, so it was an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. 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 But as as we will hear um, where <laughs> your life has led you, we mm. had no lions or tigers here. We probably had a couple of sports <laughs> dogs and some horses and cattle. But yes. um, I'm so interested because I've followed your adventures on mm-hmm. your Facebook page mm-hmm. and I've been so interested. So it's just yeah. a wonderful opportunity for me to catch up on some lost time with you, but also to tell everybody um, where you've been and what you've done. But Phoebe, what, where did you grow up? Um, I actually, no, I, I grew up um, in the Gold Coast hinterland, up, up behind the Gold Coast um, in a sort of little dairy farming community called Beachmont, Lower Beachmont, right on the edge of being in the country and, and going to town for supplies and stuff. But um, And then high school, I did go to high school on the Gold Coast, but didn't find really, didn't know what I was looking for and I certainly didn't find it down there and it was just through a friend that I heard about the ag colleges and that's what sent me west essentially and I've never really looked back. <laughs> it's It's remarkable how people can undergo such a huge change in their lives and and what they know. Um, so, and you obviously have just taken to it. So you, you went to Ag College and you worked up, did you work up in the Territory for a while? Um, near the Territory border. I was up on a place up in the Gulf, um, northwest of Cloncurry, um, near the Birkenwills Roadhouse, um, that whole area up there and Normanton and everything. So that was just an incredible experience. I was, I was up there for two years. Um, yeah, made a lot of friends, did a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of long days. But, um, yeah, so that was really great up there. That was where I went after college immediately. So that was a Lorraine station. So they had a, a feedlot there as well. So it was sort of a mixed enterprise. They had cropping and a feedlot and, and, the, and the grazing, obviously, as well. So I was in a pretty big stock camp and just having a whole lot of fun. That was when I was about 
19 and 20. So, yeah, good good time of life <laughs> for, a, yeah. for a young person. So, yeah, that yeah. was awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Phoebe, what on earth led you to Namibia? And, and uh, when you went, did you plan on staying for as long as you did? No, not at all. So the, the way I got there initially was um, one of the girls that I worked with on Lorraine Station in the stock camp was a Namibian-German backpacker named Svenja Schneider. And we became very good friends. And um, she was always saying to me, yeah, Phoebe, you must come and visit me in Namibia and I sort of Googled it and it looked really boring, lots of sand dunes, but, you know, I had it in the back of my mind that maybe one day I would go and see her. And um, after two years working on the station there, I went to central Queensland. We had a, a time apart, so to speak, but I was always planning my trip. And then when I went over to see her, I actually went to South Africa and then up to Namibia, which is the country above South Africa. And we did a huge road trip all around the country in her tiny Suzuki Jiminy with another member of the stock camp. So we had a sort of a girls' stock camp reunion over in Africa, which was fabulous. And long story short, um, a friend of a friend of hers called her and said, is that crazy Aussie girl still with you? Um, This safari company have lost a volunteer and they need somebody to go and give them a hand would she be interested? And I was like, yes. So I delayed my flights to Greece and I jumped on a bus and went and um, joined this safari basically. So I ended up, I got dropped off basically at a, a cattle station kind of a thing where all these horses were and I helped pack all the gear and equipment and went on this 10 day trip and I was fresh off cattle station. So I was doing everything, um, hooking in and carrying hay bales around and all of that and they're sort of not really used to that I guess a girl really like pitching in with all the physical stuff so yeah so I had a great time carried on traveling went to Greece and then America and Mexico came back home and basically when I got home I had an email sort of feeling me out what are you up to next year and do you have a truck license and would you be interested in coming over and and running the camp for us so I was like, wow. So <laughs> I had to have a few long chats with mum and dad and kind of see how I felt. And we thought, well, it's too good an opportunity to, to miss. So I was like, okay, I'll go over for a year and see how I like it. So got all my affairs in order. Mum made me make a will because she was worried. <laughs> I don't blame her. I was going to say, how did they react when you said you wanted to go go over there but obviously they were supportive but they must have been really worried about you they they really were because that was also a period when um ebola was quite prevalent but that was actually in more than northern areas of africa but um yes and her mum was very worried but she also after hearing me talk about the the time i spent volunteering there she was she said, Phoebe, you have to go. There's no, there's no question. Um, so that was really great that I had her support from the beginning. So yeah, no, it was, it was very scary, but somehow when you don't know what to expect, it's almost better. I think if I had an idea what I was in for, I probably would have been a bit more, (laughs) 
bit more nervous, but um, yeah, but I was I was very excited to go, very excited, yeah. And I guess, Phoebe, like for me, I am such a homebody, and I I love traveling. Not that we travel a lot, but I love I do love traveling. But I, you know, even a few weeks overseas, I start getting homesick and think, oh, yeah. you know, I just want to be back home with my animals and. Um, so what was that like for you? It must have been really confronting in a way going away for 12 months. Yeah. No, it was it was incredibly hard and, and quite scary. There's a lot of um, things I would take for granted now about living in Africa, but when you first get there, you don't know. So it's just a lot of um, being aware of your surroundings. You're constantly kind of hypervigilant of, you know, locking your doors and, and you know, driving with your doors locked and all that kind of stuff. And then to compound all of that, not really having anyone that's your close friend or family around. So I had Svenja, thank goodness, who I knew for years. So she mm. lived in town. I was living about 60 kilometres out of town on a farm. I would only see her maybe once every two months. So I was essentially very isolated and my crew and my bosses were amazing, incredible, welcoming people, which really helped. But, yeah, I, I, I struggled a lot sometimes with being so isolated and the time difference meant that I couldn't talk to mum all the time, which embarrassingly I still do. So that was, um, <laughs> that was quite hard, not being able to pick up the phone and just, yeah, offload how I was feeling or stuff like that and, and on top of that, when we were on safari, we were completely out of comms for those 10 days. I, as soon as you drive out of civilization, essentially, the, the bars go down and then your phone is just a, an inanimate object that you leave in your bag until you come back. It's just, yeah. So that was so pretty. Baby, in those instances, like when you're out on safari and if something went wrong, are there sat phones or how do you yes. communicate? So, yeah, that's very important because of the, um, not only that, but the, um, I guess the hospital or emergency rescue programs in place are very different and not as advanced as Australia. So we did have, um, my boss at all times on his saddle had a sat phone, a revolver <laughs> and a, a very good but basic first aid kit with us at all times. And then the backup crew in the vehicles, we had very advanced, um, yeah, like medical kits and stuff in case of emergency. But we also had a an agreement with EMED of um, certain airstrips and places that we could get extracted from if there was an emergency. But even so, that would still mean four by fouring to a location to to get extracted. So it was very much off the grid. <laughs> so the company it was called Namib Namibia Horse Treks. Is that correct? Uh, Namibia Horse Safari Company. Right. Yeah. So tell me about that, like how long do people go for? What sort of people do you get on those <laughs> treks? Um, all, all sorts. Um, the main thing is that um, those safaris, I keep going to say our safaris and I don't work there anymore, um, our safaris were strictly pretty much for advanced riders only. So you had to be very competent at controlling a horse at all speeds in the open. It wasn't a... A pony ride so to speak it was very much a fast-paced kind of a thing and basically the trips were 10 days long and eight days of full riding so from morning till evening with a with a lunch break so the first night and the last night they stay 
in really nice like lodge accommodation um depending on which ride it was um different areas sometimes we finished at the beach sometimes we finished down near the south african border on the on the fish river so yeah it just it just varied but basically the the point of the rides was to see as much of the amazing landscape as possible with no distractions no noise no vehicles and obviously in a environmentally friendly way so you're not leaving tire tracks in the desert and stuff so did you have a support like is there a support vehicle that goes with you or everything everyone's just on horses yeah so that that was my jam so that was so as the camp manager um we had amazing group of staff as well but basically we had a, a big mercedes truck and dog with all of the water fuel horse feed camping equipment could I just explain to people who might know what a dog is? They might <laughs> Sorry. <to you. laughs> but a, a dog is like a, a tra- an extra trailer that goes yeah. behind, that's towed behind the main part of the truck, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And when, when I do explain this to people now in the areas where I live, it's, it's exactly like, if anybody knows, um, a droving camp. So basically the the riders will saddle up, have breakfast, saddle up and ride off and then it's like go, go, go. All the backup crew, we have to pack up everything, load it all onto the vehicles in a safe manner and then we have to go essentially the long way around while the horses are literally just riding to a GPS point. So they can track elephants if there's elephants in the area. They can go and look at something up on the horizon they just have to generally head for the next stop. So that's the freedom of the riding. It's not on a track. We're literally out in the middle of nowhere. So that's what was really great about it. But me in the backup crew, so I'd be coordinating everything to get it all packed up. Um, when I say me, I wasn't really in charge. It was us all working together, scrambling as a team, and it was a great team. And, yeah, and then we basically essentially spend the next eight days racing the horses to each camp (laughs) to try and make sure that with very little effort we've got everything all set up for them to come and unsaddle and have a gin and tonic and sit by the fire and just enjoy the surroundings and um yeah so it was a lot of work (laughs) a lot of packing a lot of yeah yeah and you must have had to be very organized too because how many horses would normally be on one of those trips. So for a full for a full trip, we would have twelve guests and twenty horses, um, and that's that's so that we would have between four and six horses spare at all times in case we have a horse that gets sore or sore back or we just want to give them a rest. Maybe if it's a young horse that's you know anything younger than than six, really, um, we would generally make sure that they only did every second day or half days just so that they don't get too worn out because it's 40 to 70 kilometres a day of pretty hard riding. So it's um, it's pretty tough on them when they're young. You don't want to <laughs> burn them out. And I guess like the organisation of making sure that the guests were well catered for and well looked after, but the horses too, like that's an, an enormous undertaking to take yeah. 20 horses away for 10 days and have to make sure there's plenty of food and water for them as well. 
Absolutely. We had Dr. Talani Grayling. She's got a doctorate in desert ecology, I believe, and she owned the company prior to the people who own it now. And she would come with us and she's extraordinary with the care of the horses. She's actually did her doctorate on the the wild horses of Namibia. There's a, a herd of wild horses in the south of Namibia that are actually the remnants of the German cavalry when they were, I believe, dropping bombs in the area essentially these cavalry horses were all turned loose and there's one well in the entire area. And even though all of the buildings and stuff are no longer there, these horses remained and they now live within a like a 40-kilometre radius of this one well and they've adapted and they survive in this like extreme desert conditions and they're beautiful. So anyway, she was the main person in charge of the horse's welfare. She was very particular about fitting the saddles to each of the horses. We had a number of different ways that we would um, pad out the gullets of the saddles to, to fit the horses correctly because they do spend a lot of time being ridden. So, yeah, it was very important. The horses were number one priority. <laughs> Phoebe, did you ever get any people who would arrive saying they could ride well but perhaps they thought they could ride better than they really could. I have to be very careful what I say here. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, we would. And sometimes it wasn't even their fault, if that makes sense. They they may have been very advanced within their type of riding or or something, but we did get cases that, I mean, sorry, even, even for me, first time riding on a cattle station and you go to get on out on a big black soil flat it's very different to stepping on at a riding school or even in a show jumping arena or a cross-country course to it's really it's such a huge horizon you can see the curvature of the earth and our horses weren't dozing quiet animals they they know their job and they're ready to go so they're not really standing stock still while you're trying to get on they're quite feisty and you could see that some people were very nervous, very um, taken aback by the, the size of where they were. Um, and we always had a horse packed, so to speak, that was your absolute push button darling of the of the crowd. So just in case somebody wasn't up for a fiery steed, we had a, a lovely quiet horse that they, that they could ride just in case. So, yeah, it did happen occasionally, not very often, but... Um, we always made sure we had one very quiet, very safe horse. Not that our horses weren't safe, but, you know, it was just um, yeah. just in case somebody's not quite as bold as they proclaimed in their client information. Yeah, because um, you're right, how do you know what you don't know sort of thing, you know, <laughs> and if you are, you, you might be the, uh, the best rider at the, you know, little riding school wherever. Mm. Um, but, yeah, even for me, like, when, uh, you know, if it, those really, really long days, if you're mm. not accustomed to it or if you haven't been in the saddle, you know, even for a few months for a big, long day, I, you know, I get sore and my butt gets rubbed. Oh, and, and gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you Absolutely. almost have to acclimatise, don't you? <laughs> yeah, and they say... Um, well, I can speak from experience too, but the clients generally say day three is the hardest and then day four, everybody's in a rhythm, you're used to your horse, your calluses have hardened up, <laughs> you know, it's all um, it's all pretty good from there. 
But, um, yeah, yeah no, and, and obviously different tack too. I mean, you've probably got your own saddle that you're used to. I mean, everybody, most most of our clients were from Europe and the UK, Germany, France, places like that, and they all ride in an English style. So our saddles were, um, I would say the closest thing would be to a half-breed stock saddle but without the knee rolls. So they've got swinging fenders and quite a deep, seat but yeah just a bit different to what english style riders were used to so in the oxbow stirrups too sometimes they found really hard to sort of deal with the yeah but everybody settled in and and yeah and that was that was the funnest funnest part of it was matching people to horses actually because you read the you read their client information and then obviously we know all our horses inside out and back to front so you say okay well, the way this lady's writing, I think she'll be a good match for so-and-so and this one's got this experience, she'll like so-and-so. And then what my boss would do, Andrew Gillies, he would meet with them while the backup crew is going to Camp 1 with all the horses to set up. He would be at the lodge for the first meeting, the first dinner, the slideshow to tell them what they're in for and all of that. And sometimes he would get the horse list that we'd made and just cross a horse out and give them a totally different one after meeting them in person because you get quite a good idea then of the type of person that they are. And it's, yeah, sometimes you think they want this type of horse and then you meet them and you go, oh, no, we might give you that one instead. <laughs> and and mostly that worked out really well. It wasn't very often. We always said if, you, if you're not happy with your horse, let us know and we'll, we'll swap you. That's not a problem. But generally we tended to get it pretty right the first time. Everyone was pretty happy with their trusty steed. And what sort of horses were they or are they, Phoebe? Like what breed, what kind of breed are they? Um, All different sorts, to be honest. One of the main things which is kind of odd is that we tried to go for horses that weren't too large, mainly because of how much it takes to feed them because they, they would lose a huge amount of their body weight over the 10 days despite how much we would feed them. So you want the kind of smaller hardier types but all of them nearly were cross crossbreds so we had quarter horse arabs we had warm blood thoroughbreds we had all all different sorts um you know paint mixes yeah mongrels all of them beautiful mongrels <laughs> but the um myself i'm not very fond of arabian horses but i did find that the the crosses that we had with a bit of Arab blood, they did tend to do a lot better in the in the heat and the long days. They just nothing really faced them. Um, the purebred Arabs tended to be a bit um, fussy on the picket line because they are on a picket line at night time. So they've basically got to be the main thing about the horses was temperament, basically. So they had to be really hardy and tough. And then basically they needed to be able to drink when you took them to water, eat when you give them a nose bag, chill out when they're on the picket line. And some of them, we'd take them on one safari and they'd pace back and forth and didn't want to eat, I don't want to drink, and they'd fight with the horse next to them and it was just a big story. And those ones generally we would rehome them. we just try and keep the ones mm -hmm. that were suited to being on safari. And some of them are just amazing they really are the safari horse they're so tough they're so incredible yeah and what sort of thing would you feed them what would you take on the trip to um, feed them because i imagine that lucent isn't readily available <laughs> it's not we actually had to um 
Well, sometimes we could get it in Namibia, but a lot of the time we had to import it from South Africa. But um, we managed a good contact. The last two years I was there, we were able to get Lucerne really um, easily. But yeah, we would make, we would feed them really high quality grass hay. That was the the main bulk of what they would get fed. And then three times a day, they would get a nose bag of a pre-mixed equi feed of a maintenance level. So not too high energy just to maintain that calorific intake. And then we would feed them fiber beet and then copra as well, controversially. Um, the last two years, um, I know some people are very like for it and against it, but we would always, it would be soaked for 12 hours beforehand. And um, we did find that really helped with just their general condition. They would stay very shiny and and bright and, and um not lose so much weight through the trip, even though we would, we would feed them pretty constantly. But because um, we would feed them again at midnight as well. So they'd get a morning nose bag, lunchtime nose bag with a wedge of loosen, and then evening nose bag, lots of grass, like as much grass as they would eat through the evening. And then at midnight, someone would <laughs> draw straws and we would get up and feed them another another big biscuit of um loosen to get them through the night so just to um yeah make sure they're having enough and to stop them bickering through the night you know children getting bored on the picket line they can sometimes um yeah have a little argument with each other but yeah we tried to put friends with friends so that didn't happen very often yeah and um Katie, generally what is animal welfare like over there do they that's a fairly strong emphasis on animal welfare generally or not really? No, that was that was quite hard to see. Um, a lot of the time um, you see some, it's like anywhere, you see some really horrific things, I guess more so than in Australia obviously, um, just general mismanagement, like as in they, they treat the animal as a tool or an object. I saw a horse, you know, tied up somewhere and it had a, a saddle ratchet strapped onto it, stuff like that. Um, you know, donkeys being ridden with bicycle chains and just oh. all kinds of awful stuff. Just horses hobbled with wire, like literally their legs carbon code together. Um, we actually, um, we got a couple of, we used to, sorry, let me backtrack a bit. So um, one of my bosses, their family has a farm and just as a bit of a helping hand, we actually went out to castrate a few of their stallions. They had just stallions out there. So, um, and two of them were very young and quite big and, and strong looking. And we said, we'll buy those off you, but we'll come back and get them in a few weeks once all the swelling and everything's gone down and, and we'll bring them back to the farm. And in those few weeks, it was actually over the Christmas period and the workers had broken them to harness and driven them over 350 kilometres in a weekend to go and party at, you know, their friend's place. And, you know, they would have been driven down there, tied up outside the pub, so to speak, and then driven back. <laughs> and they were just skin and bone, like they were big horses. And when we went to pick them up, it, I didn't recognise them. They were skin and bone they had hair off them everywhere where the harnesses had rubbed them raw, like pink, and 
Anyway, for the weeks afterwards, I was peeling strips of skin off them where they'd been whipped that hard that it had killed the skin underneath, you know, just it's just such a silly waste. So short answer, yeah, it's really awful sometimes. But um, you get you get other people that the horse is their absolute pride and joy and they are so careful with it and the nose band is padded and they brush them every day and it's it's like having a 200 series Land Cruiser for them. They just absolutely make sure it's immaculate and really well looked after and it's their pride and joy. So it just I think it depends on where they're coming from as to what they're using the animal for. But you do see some pretty hard things. And, like, it must be so confronting to feel so powerless when you see things like that happening because what can you do, really? Yeah, it is. And not not everyone, but to, to a degree, the people that live there have lived there for a long time. They're almost amused by your distress, you know, because they're sort of like, this is just the way it is. I guess it would be like, you know, someone someone from town coming to watch your brand cattle. They just sort of they'd be horrified but we're like it's just got to be done it's just the way it is and and that's sort of how local african people see it they're like this is just life this is just how it is and you're being stupid and i guess that's what they see and what they learn from you know from a a young age i guess too so definitely um, yeah tv just getting off the horses for a minute i was going and i as I said before, I followed you on Facebook and I loved all your photos in that night. Was going back through last night, but there was a photo of a really, really skinny red dog, and had a wound on its back. And then there was a photo of the dog sitting on your lap and really shiny. Yeah. So tell me the story about that dog. I was really interested. That's uh, my beloved Wesley. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so the farm where we lived was about 60 k's out of town and um, next door was actually an auction pen for wildlife. So they would be um, one weekend a month there'd be an auction where they'd be selling zebras, giraffes, antelope right next door to where we lived. And um, same as with cattle when you're selling things in, in large numbers, occasionally one would break a leg or be injured and have to be shot and they had a big pit out the back where they would dump these carcasses. And basically we had mares that were due to foal. So I had taken my two big ridgeback dogs for a walk in the evening just to go and see the girls and see who might need to come in to have her foal or, or whatever. And they took off chasing this little yellow streak. And when I got there, it was this small emaciated dog, um, very frightened. He just had his eyes closed. He crapped himself it was just grass and he was just skin and bone so I could see he was starving um and I sort of I picked him up and I took him to where my workers live and said is this your dog and they were all like no no and I found out later that they'd been throwing rocks at him for days because he was coming around to their houses trying to steal scraps and stuff so they knew he was there but they you know if they just didn't tell me so <sighs> um I brought him in and washed him. He was covered in ticks and everything. And um, the farm, we were leasing it off a vet and basically I asked if he wouldn't mind when he came out to scan the mares if he would just have a look at this little dog I'd found. And basically, yeah, he was just, he was starving to death. He'd just gotten his adult teeth. 
So he was just past puppy stage and he seemed okay. We cleaned him up, pulled the ticks off. But then in the next couple of days when I went to touch him, he was really friendly at first and then when I went to touch him, he would scream and yelp and try and bite me and I was, what's going on? And when I took him in into the vet, it turned out he had very severe tick fever. He was very, very sick. And as a result of that, all of the tick bites on his back kind of made this big necrotic bit of tissue and he's, he was just rotting to the point where I could see one of his ribs, the, the deterioration got so bad. But he came good, long story short. I put these little T-shirts on him and stuff so he couldn't get to it and he just kind of slowly blossomed into this beautiful little dog. He was so timid and so afraid of people. And then, yeah, he just turned into this little darling. He's still very um, very cautious at first when he meets new people and stuff. But I hear now he's still living where I lived with my boss and apparently every new volunteer that arrives, <laughs> he becomes their favourite again and he's carried around like a baby and, yeah, he was just a very sad little story but he became this amazing little dog. And, um, yeah, I, I considered bringing him home but he just, I think, even me restraining him, who he knew really well, he would start to panic mm -hmm. if you really. So the thought of putting him in a cage and, you know, having people looking at him and stuff going through quarantine, I think he would have just hated it. He would have been an absolute mess. Yeah. So that was oh, hard. So, oh, I'm really emotional hmm. hearing that story, Phoebe, because I, I was wondering, you know, what it was like for you having to leave, you know, everything behind to come home, you know, that you loved. And um, it must have been really, really, really hard. The, um yeah, it was. Leaving them was really, really hard, a hard decision to make. Um, the the other dog, Herman, the grey one, I was planning to bring him home. That was my plan all along. And then once I got home, I was going to coordinate it because he had to go to South Africa for quarantine for 60 days before he could come to Australia to go into quarantine. <laughs> um, so coordinating that turned out to be quite difficult and in the end it was going to cost me $9,000 um, to get him over here. And once I moved up here to central Queensland, the reality kind of set in that um, he would either have to be up in the dog cages or, you know, on a chain through the day and then I would only be home in the evenings and he's used to having full range of an African farm and, chasing warthogs and ground squirrels and just having the time of his life. And, um, yeah, so he's also still over there just living this amazing life still and he probably doesn't know how much I miss him, but I know that he's having a great time and I'm so lucky that the people that have him are really good friends of mine and they send me videos and pictures of him all the time and um, it's just with this COVID situation um, when you take your leave of friends who have become like family it's just you don't expect it to be for so long when I said goodbye I didn't think that it would be so long before I'd be able to go back and and see everyone so that's really yeah. tough yeah 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 um you almost need to clone yourself so you can have 
one baby here and one baby out there. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, but I got yeah. out, got out just in time. <laughs> oh. um, you know, you were talking about um, them selling the zebras and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So are they? Why were they being sold? What were they being bought for? And were they wild animals that were being sold or had they been bred in captivity or what was um, the story with them? So um, over there, um, please don't quote me legally on all these things, but as far as I understood it, <laughs> the way that... Um, Hang on, where's the, my lawyer? <laughs> yeah, the way things work with, um, with game over there. So obviously animals like zebra and... Um, different types of antelope and stuff are um, free roaming over there like kangaroos. And the rule that I understood from my bosses was that any animals that wander onto your farm are yours. And um, if you wish to go hunting, um, you're on a, on a register of some kind as a, as a big property anyway, and once a year a person will come out, a scientist of some sort, and they will do a audit, a, a survey of your place to see the populations of animals that you have and you will then be given a permit or a quota of how many animals you can hunt that year of, of what species. Um, so you have two choices. You can either fence your boundary in a way that lets the animals pass through so they'll have like every fourth panel of fencing they'll have two droppers with the bottom strand missing and they will have quite a deep pad going underneath where the like goats they can get on their knees and and pass through zebras everything does it um so they can move with the rain and, and travel from place to place your other option is you install game fencing, which is those you've probably seen pictures of those. It's, you know, nine feet high, big poles, you know, to keep giraffes in and everything, and it's buried underground too so they can't burrow underneath. And then you are able to stock your place with any animals you choose. So some people might have, they might have like a bed and breakfast type of thing and they're going to see if, okay, I have this many acres, this many camel thorn trees, and you apply and somebody comes out and they go oh yes you can have 2.8 giraffes so they are then allowed to go and buy two giraffes if they wish so that when their guests come to stay they pack an esky they go for a drive and on your sundowner drive you've got giraffes over here zebras over there it just people collect them essentially and it's part of a business so yeah and and for meat too sorry so Zebra, zebra meat is eaten over there. Um, Springbok meat, kudu meat, game meat is the main type of red meat over there, I would say. It's, yeah. So getting back to the safaris and along those lines of the food business, Ooh. what would you, you know, what, what would be on offer at night, for instance, as a meal for the people that were on um, safari with you? Well, that was something we were really, really enthusiastic about and we actually made a cookbook a couple of years um, in a row. Um, it was a, a mixture of, I guess, like traditional, normal English, European type cooking with a few South African style recipes thrown in. There's even a couple of my mum's recipes on the menu, I believe. Um, 
but we basically tried to make it so that we could cater for all um, dietary requirements without having to cook a separate meal. So there would be a main a meat, obviously, um, two veg, a starch, and a salad. So that was with every every night that would be on offer. So you mentioned salads. So how do you keep that cold and fresh for okay. eight or ten days? So we had um, a lot of the vehicles, so the truck and um, the kitchen trailer and the, the vehicle that pulled the kitchen trailer all had solar panels on the roof and we had, I'd have to think, one, two, three, four um, 80-litre camping fridge and freezers. So um, we would pack the frozen meat and vegetables according to the menu very tightly this, this is why I was saying earlier packing was a big part of the job so you would make sure that you had everything in order so you literally just had to open the fridge and take out that day's um meat and veg or the, the day before but yeah so um that was how we managed to keep everything fresh so obviously the first few days you would have your leafy salads and stuff like that and then as the safari progressed um I mean, avocados keep very well, um, so you could, it might not have leaves, but we'd make a lovely sort of avocado, cucumber, um, uh, tomato salad to have, um, all kinds of stuff. You can get really creative. Even watermelon lasts really well. So Jamie Oliver's watermelon salad made an appearance a few times. Um, very, very seasonal, basically, whatever was there, but we... We did try to put a huge emphasis on having really, really yummy food and that helps get the riders home in a hurry because they want to come home and have their dinner. Phoebe, <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, I was reading where one night you were chased by lions. <laughs> what, what were some of the most memorable moments? So some of those um, stories I'd really love to hear. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, there's so many. I'm not being chased by lions, <laughs> but um, that that was actually, that wasn't on a safari. That was just we were camping at a game reserve and um, we could hear the male lions vocalising really close to camp. You're within an electrified boma, so they can't get in. And basically my friend and I, she's from Australia, she came over to visit me. We'd, we'd had a few beers. We were having a barbecue. We heard the lions and we and several other campers went over with our little torches to try and see what was going on. And basically when we got too close to the fence, the lion was not far away from the fence. He got very upset with all our torches and mock charged us. <laughs> but even though we're essentially safe, it's it's very thin little wires and you still feel like you're standing on your two feet next to a lion <laughs> and yes so we ran hysterically screaming back to camp and it was very fun but um uh on safari we had a couple of um fairly close lion encounters um only at night they're very cautious um and basically we were camped in an area where there are a lot of elephants and lions in a in a dry riverbed and um, we weren't keeping watch at that stage because we heard that the lions weren't in the area. 
But what happens when elephants come close to camp is the horses, you know, the, the snort that a horse does when it's a bit spooked, they make that sound. So you would wake up to the horses being restless and, and when they're frightened they would spin on their on their ropes trying to, you know, they know they can't run away so they would sort of spin and we were sleeping, we just slept in the open on a stretcher in our swags. We didn't have tents so I would have to unzip my swag, put my headlamp on and go and see what was happening and calm them down. And what was happening is there was a, a family group of elephants not far from camp just feeding on the trees in the riverbed. So it was quite lovely. You'd sort of have a bit of a midnight. You'd stand there patting the horse and watch the elephants go by and then all the horses would calm down and say, all right, we'll go back to sleep. And that happened twice more. <laughs> to the point where the elephants weren't so wonderful anymore and you were thinking, oh, for God's sake, just go somewhere else. Um, <laughs> which I'd really like to get some sleep. And then the, the third time it happened, um, one of the horses, whose name was Rupert, incidentally, poor Rupert, um, was really panicking and pulling back on, on the picket line, which was making this awful guitar string sound. So a few of us staff have jumped up and sorted him out and we're like what was he freaking out at and we walked a little distance away from where he was you know looking with our torches and suddenly there in the sand is a huge lion print and the lion had actually come within about four meters of Rupert and obviously when we've all jumped up and turned our lights on it's run away but it was literally you could see where it had come it had come up out of the riverbed and must have been literally, you know, crawling from bush to bush. So he probably would have been frightened and then the closer it got, he's just panicked, but it never had a chance to actually go for him. But needless to say, um, there was a big change of policy after that night and when we were in that certain region, we would keep lion watch. So we'd take two-hour shifts each and sit up and drink a lot of coffee and keep the fire going and just um, just having some light and movement and presence um, would keep keep the line away generally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there was the last one, which was my the most amazing one. Um, one of the last safaris I did over there was actually the night before my birthday. I was due to go on Lion Watch at midnight, so midnight, ticked over and it was my birthday. And um, my alarm went off at 11.55 and I went off to the loo and came back. And as I approached the fire to take over from my boss, who was still up with several enthusiastic whiskey drinkers, they were all very softly <laughs> singing me happy birthday, you know, happy birthday to you. So it was really, really nice. So I took, we had a big spotlight with a trigger um, and I walked out to the edge of camp and thought, all right, well, I'll do my first scan so you would just scan around with this spotlight again for light and movement and to see if anything's out there and the first thing I saw was a, <laughs> a large beige shape you know a few hundred meters away and I thought it was a springbok I literally passed right over it because there were antelope you know sort of grazing out out in there and I've come back again and this animal has then looked and it was like, my, what bright eyes you have. They're just the most enormous reflections coming back at me. And I thought, 
oh, jeepers, what's wrong with this springbok? It looks a bit, looks a bit funny. <laughs> and, um, and then basically it, it was at that, it was sort of going diagonal and then it sort of turned and was just, it wasn't prowling, but I started as it came closer, I could see those shoulder blades, you know, coming up behind and I, I was like, that's a bloody lion. It's about 100 metres away, just walking nonchalantly towards camp. And, I mean, I think it, it was full moon and I bet you we were sort of up on a bit of a, a hill and I think in the moonlight it must have just looked like a buffet, these 20 horses all strung out standing there. <laughs> um, so she probably thought all her Christmases had come at once and I didn't want to frighten everybody who was sleeping. So I turned to my boss who was just over my shoulder and was going, Andrew, meow, meow. <laughs> I didn't want to scream out, there's a lion. So, yeah, he came and stood with me for a second and we sort of scratched our heads and wondered what to do. And we went and got um, Andrew rides with a bullwhip just in case there is um, animals that need, you know, just to let them know that we're there. So they have an opportunity to leave. And, yeah, we, we ended up having to wake everybody up because she was just, she wasn't in a rush, but she was just coming to camp. <laughs> so we had to um, crack, crack the whip a few times and she sort of, like a, exactly like a cat, she stopped and she was flashing her tail and looking at us and like, oh, what are you doing? And then she sort of turned and looked over her shoulder and walked away again. But about every half hour you'd scan and she'd be in a different spot. She was just walking around the whole camp like just. <laughs> but I guess in the desert like that, opportunities don't come up very often. You know, she was probably pretty desperate for a feed, I reckon. But, yeah, yeah. it was oh very exciting God. the next morning when we all saddled up and, yeah, went to find her tracks and see where she came from and where she went and, yeah, it was very good birthday present. <laughs> I'm just loving this story for you. It's just <laughs> incredible. Oh, my gosh, I'm so jealous. I miss it. So I like talking about it. <laughs> Do you think you'll go back, baby? Definitely, definitely. Um, that was the one of the first things I did when I came back was I made a, a separate bank account from savings and everything and I just called it Namibia and it's I have $10,000 in there at all times just ready to go <laughs> so um yeah when the time comes because see I'd, I'd really love to take Sam over there um because he a he's never been overseas and um there's people over there that are as important to me for him to meet as my family you know they they it was a huge part of my life that I spent there so um yeah I really want him to come and see it all and I want to go and do all the things I enjoyed doing without somebody shaking their gin and tonic glass at me. <laughs> I'd like to go yeah. and do it on my own time and, yeah, set up my own camp chair you in shake, beautiful shake places. your gin and tonic glass yes. to someone else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And gin and tonics don't taste the same here. They taste a lot better after you've had a big day in the saddle and you're looking at a beautiful desert sunset, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Phoebe, what are the Namibian people like? Generally, super, super friendly. Very, very um, welcoming. Very excited to share their country with other people. It's a very, it's a big country, but very small population. There's only two and a half million people in Namibia, so it's the the second least 
populated country in the world after Mongolia. So it's very much um, they're really excited basically. When when people come to visit, they want to share the country with you and they're very welcoming. The, the white people are very laid back, um, very Australian vibes. They like camping and rugby and farming and cricket and drinking lots of beer. So um, that side of things fitting in wasn't so scary. And um, as for the local Indigenous people, they're also, yeah, 100%, I would say, very welcoming. You know, it's um, they're very excited to have tourism there as a, as a revenue. So I never really had... I didn't have any bad experiences there with with local people. Um, yeah, no, it was pretty pretty fabulous. Just um, different. It was very different. Actually, coming home, I must say, was more of a culture shock than going over there. Weirdly enough, I found it very coming back here and and adjusting back to Australia was was quite difficult for me. I really I've had a few hard days just missing missing Africa and. My friends and it's just everything works so much better over here but there's also a lot more rules and everything is very rigid and yeah it's um it's different and yeah the, the, my biggest mistake was the first thing I did I think the day after I landed I went to um a big shopping mall on the Gold Coast and I was just I nearly had a panic attack I think it was just so many people and so much um it sounds weird to say, but so much choice just walking through and there's just so much um, consumerism and things to buy and fashion and, you know, it's. I was living a very basic dialed back life over there. So to plunge back into people talking about what brand of handbag they have was, I was thinking, what time sunset today? You know, it was just a different shift in my, yeah. But anyway, I'm good now. I have acclimatised back <laughs> i've got some got yeah. some plans in place and yeah it's just um life is really really good at the moment so that's that's the main thing and we've got lots of grass i hope you've got lots of grass up there yeah yeah we do we do yeah which is lovely and yeah it's nice water. definitely um phoebe how long were you over there for all together um five years so i went over in um early 2015 so I was there from early 2015 until the end of 2019. So I, I literally, I came home in November um, when all the bushfires were raging everywhere. And then um, I think within by January or February, I think they they started closing all the travel down. And so that's, yeah, that's five years. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, Phoebe, thank you so much. I, I think you should write a book. <laughs> and have um, all your beautiful photos and stories and uh, because, yeah, I just, um, and I was reminded again last night of all your adventures when I was going yeah. through your Facebook pages. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was reading things and, oh, and that's cool. not, not just because I was going to talk to you today but because it's all so interesting. There's, there's one video that you've got up there of this leopard coming out of a tree to this antelope <laughs> down the bottom. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a great experience. And I'm I'm very glad um 
that I do have, I hope, I hope they don't disappear if the internet crashes because I need to maybe get them all down. But I did use social media in those days as a form of journaling. It was a bit of a, a decompression ritual. The night I got home from safari, I would A, have a very long hot shower in a real bathroom, um, get in my dressing gown, jog on each side, and I would go through the pictures that I had taken on that trip and write a little something about each each picture that I had chosen and what it was. And, yeah, that was kind of a way to come down off safari. It's kind of a, yeah, I really enjoyed that part of it. I don't have much to write about these days. I'm too busy just working and it's not the kind of work that you want to write things about. But, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> oh, well, you just need to go and put it all in and make it available for people. So I Maybe just, um, I will. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, I think you should. Phoebe, thank yeah. you so much. I've really enjoyed um, chatting with you and you've made me want to go to Namibia now and go on a safari. <laughs> well, if you ever need any travel tips, I have so many and so many lovely contacts uh, or places you could stay. So if you ever do. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Phoebe. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for talking to me. I was so excited oh. to be able to chat about it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to my interview. If you'd like to hear more from Life Journey, subscribe to our podcast and we'll let you know when we have new interviews coming up.